I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two segments this week, uh, four guests. First up, we have a conversation with uh, three women who had very uh, high-profile, prominent roles in the sports media business and have since moved to and thrived and other businesses. So a conversation with Amy Moritz, a former Buffalo News sports writer, Amy K. Nelson, a former ESPN and SB Nation writer, also an on-air commentator, for ESPN, and Cat O'Brien, a former baseball writer for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and Newsday. And they were phenomenal. Uh, Just a discussion about transitioning from the sports media to other professions, the challenges of that process, their own personal journeys that they went through, and then just some advice for people if they want to take their skills in the sports media and move to another profession. Um, really appreciate their time and insight. And then TJ Quinn, who was on this podcast in March, comes back to talk about the latest on the Brittany Griner case, which he's reporting on for ESPN, what's changed in the case, and, and they've had a significant change here, how the WNBA is involved in what they're doing, the challenger reporting on Griner, and some other issues with that case. So Amy Moritz, Amy K. Nelson, Cat O'Brien to start, and then TJ Quinn on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, these three women have transitioned successfully from high profile careers in the sports media to now sort of working and living and experiencing uh, life and jobs outside the business. And I think it's an interesting topic to explore, you know, leaving sports media and why you decided to leave. And, you know, if you happen to be a listener who's thinking about this, um, my three guests, I think, are living proof that like you can transition and use whatever skills you had to forge something different professionally and to be successful. Let me introduce them again. Amy Moritz is a former Buffalo News sports writer who uh, who worked at that paper for nearly two decades, I think. Amy K. Nelson is a former ESPN and SB Nation writer, as well as a uh, an on-air commentator for ESPN. remember watching Amy many, many times on television. Cat O'Brien is a former baseball writer for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and Newsday, and I'm pleased to be joined by the two Amys and Kat. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hi, Rich. Great to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. And Amy Kay, good to see you. It's been 12 and a half years, but good to hear your voice again. Good to see Um, you. All right, so let me start with you, Amy Moritz. There's two Amys here, so I'll say Amy Kay and Amy Moritz, or Amy M. Why and when did you make the transition out of sports? And I think between Kat and the other Amy, you're the most recent in terms of, of, of sort of leaving the business and making that transition. So what was the reason you decided to do that at this point in your career? Gosh, that's such like a good question. And uh, there's no hard answer to it. I don't know about the, like the other women, like there's no, like I didn't wake up one morning and be like, that's it. I'm done. Um, it was kind of a slow process. Um, 
I have been at the Buffalo News for going on 19 years, and I was kind of just getting tired. Um, the newsroom was shrinking, so there was more work, less people. Um, to be just completely honest, I wanted to have some nights and weekends free. I wanted to be able to plan a life um, more than a week and a half in advance um, type of thing. So I just decided it was a little bit of a classic case of burnout. Uh, and a lot of my colleagues were leaving the Buffalo News too. People I had worked with for a number of years, they were starting to leave and do other things or go to the athletic or go different places. So it, it wasn't the same group of people. And no disrespect to the people who were coming in, but I was losing a lot of my friends and, and, and colleagues. Uh, Kat, you, um, you left the business bef- uh, many years, I think, before um, Amy did. So for you, why and when did you make that transition? So I kind of made two transitions. So I was a sports reporter, but then after I left that, I stayed in sports on the business side for a few years. So um, I was covering baseball. I was covering Yankees, the Yankees for Newsday. And I was in my late 20s and uh, really surrounded by men, almost entirely men, 99% men, uh, a lot of middle-aged men talking about hanging on until retirement as there were layoffs, you know, happening around the business. And I just thought I could totally understand why that would be, you know, what they were trying to do if I were 50 years old with a mortgage and kids. And that was the only thing I'd ever done, probably the same decision. But being in my 20s, it didn't seem like the best uh, career strategy for me um, to try to hang on until retirement. And so um, I one day I was thinking about what else to do. And one day saw something about MBA programs, knew nothing about it, started researching, ended up getting my MBA and I initially stayed in sports on the business side. I interned at Real Madrid. I worked at ESPN on the business side. Um, and what pushed me out really at that point was I, the month after I graduated business school, I had a concussion that led to a stroke in between needing to pay for pay off all my student loans and pay medical debt. Uh, I simply had to make more money. And uh, so that's really what pushed me out of out of sports, not out of sports reporting, but out of sports. Uh, yeah, I'm glad uh, that you've recovered um, from that. Amy Kay, um, the same question. And I think, again, uh, if there's somebody probably in our panel who's going to be known most nationally, it's you just because you were on ESPN and um, and we saw you on television. So I think for a lot of people, they would be asking, OK, why would you why would you make that switch when you had sort of reached what? I guess conventionally is thought of as you know the 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 destination place or the 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 pinnacle of of a of a sports media brand. Uh, yeah, trust me, my bank account definitely was asking that question too. Um, you know, I think I think I've I've had to wade through this question over the years, obviously, and for me personally, I. I had sort of two moments. One was leaving sports. I left sports after uh, my SB Nation contract ran out and I started freelancing because I uh, freelancing non-sports stories and actually got back to photography, which was originally what I went to school for. I just was feeling a need to sort of tell stories outside the realm of sports. And I was feeling a need to get back a little bit back more to my creative roots. And that what is eventually what led me to cover Ferguson, the uprising in Ferguson. 
Um, so that was the w- first transition. And then shortly after Ferguson, a few months after Ferguson, I had a mental health crisis and the mental health crisis uh, forced, <laughs> absolutely forced me out of the business. And I had to do an entire reset. And I left New York City after about 15 years and moved to New Orleans where my brother has lived here for about 20 years. And I had to rebuild my life. And so it was a turning point obviously. And it's taken a number of years to rebuild my life. And now I have started my own mental wellness company, my mental um, mental health company, and I'm in that space. So it's a, it was a, it was a long path to sort of get to where I am now, but those were sort of the two transitional moments for me and why I left the business. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think it's pretty obvious for Amy Kay um, that the transition was hard. She sort of just sort of gave a little bit of insight. Let me go back to you, Kat, just in terms of how, how hard was it to make this transition? You've obviously made it and you've been successful, but you know, I, I if I look at it through my own prism, you know, you, you, when you're young, you may have sort of a dream of like, I, my dream was to work at Sports Illustrated. I was very fortunate that I was able to do that, but to, to transition out from there, let's say when I was 30, 31 really seems hard. Like it, I think a lot of times in the business, many times you're sort of, you're almost sort of told a lot of times you can't do anything else. It's all bullshit, but you sort of really, really think that because the skill is so specialized. So for you, like the literal transition itself, was it hard to go from my identity is as a sports person to something else? I would say it was hard. One, it was hard to get a different job um, outside of sports. Uh, initially, I just looked for kind of a higher paying job within sports, but it is a relatively small niche. We think of it as so important because it gets so much attention, but it is a small niche. Um, and then, you know, I, I found that opportunity doing something else. Um, I've been working in, in fintech, uh, financial services the last two years. Um, but I, I do think there, there's something about, uh, and, and I don't rule out moving back to sports at some point. I think, you know, that's actually something I've thought about more in the past year than I would have anticipated. Uh, I think part of it is cause I, I have more financial freedom. I paid off my, my medical debt, uh, getting closer on those student loans. Um, but it, it was challenging because I think I'm someone not, and this isn't, true for everyone but i really want to care about what i'm working on uh whether it's a mission like i feel like i'm doing something good in the world or just i love it and so one or both of those you can do both that's amazing uh but that's really important to me and that hasn't always been how i felt uh in my post sports career amy uh amy m i want to um ask you this because you know, again, this is a fairly recent transition for you. So maybe like the burnout aspect of it, as you said, um, didn't make the transition so difficult at this moment. But let me sort of follow up on something Kat said. When um, when you made the decision sort of mentally to, to make the switch, um, how did you find the opportunities were out there in terms of um, in terms of what you could do? Were you confident that the skill sets could transition or, I don't know, I guess take me through your own personal journey in terms of, you you know, in Buffalo, you had a very sort of high profile job and now you have to sort of figure out what the, what your next step is. And I'm curious if, um, if you found the, um, if you were confident, I guess, in your own skill set to make that transition. Yeah. I mean, it was, 
It was challenging for sure. I mean, I, I was ready to move on and do something different. And much like Kat said, I, I wanted to do something um, that also was meaningful and not that covering sports isn't meaningful, but at a certain point, it's like, how many different ways can I write that someone like had an RBI and two singles and um, let's not even talk about the Buffalo Sabres um, and the dumpster fire that they were, that I was covering. Um, so, uh, so I was looking for what, so I wanted to do something meaningful. So I actually bounced around a couple of nonprofits for a while before I ended up um, at the Martin group doing agency public relations, which is a completely different animal than I ever expected. I felt confident that my skills could transition. Um, I feel like that kind of goes back to my college years. They had always said, if you can write, you can do any job. Um, you can do almost anything. So I felt really confident about that. Some of it was convincing other people that, hey, just because I covered sports doesn't mean I don't know how to do other things and that those skills don't transition. So it took a little, honestly, it took a little bit of convincing in some instances to um, let people know and explain to them that this is, I, I can do this job. I have, I have those basic skills to do it. Um, once I did that, um, then it was, it, it was able to do it, but there was, you know, I'm learning a whole new skill set in some ways, you know, at, in my forties. So um, it was challenging and a little different, but it was a breath of fresh air kind of, kind of challenging a little bit too. Uh, Amy K. Nelson, yeah, you, um, you said sort of that you had multiple transitions and that you um, reformed this new life um, in New Orleans. So I want to ask you about challenges as, as well. Obviously, you should have had your personal challenge that uh, you've overcome to sort of to recalibrate this life. But did you how did you find what you had done before? Like, let me ask it this way. Was what you had done before ultimately useful for you in terms of what you are doing now? I want to say that anything that we are doing in our professional lives at some point, but particularly, you know, as journalists, this is very uh, targeted to really trying to address maybe journalists who might be thinking about transitioning out of the business is absolutely relevant. And there are so many amazing skills that we have as, as journalists that completely translate in so many different ways. I think the, I think one of the biggest challenges is, I think there are two. Um, one is trying to figure out exactly what those skills are that you're best at and where those fit in to whatever next profession you're looking at. And then two, Rich, you mentioned this when you were talking to Kat, was about identity. And I really want to, I really want to zone in on that because for me personally, I, I had a major identity crisis. I had gone from covering Ferguson and being on Chris Matthews hardball every night in Ferguson and having a pretty high profile role in, 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 in the coverage of that uprising to a few months later, uh, moving with three bags out of New York city and living in my brother's house in New Orleans saying, what the hell just happened? Who am I? Who am I in this world? where do I fit in anymore? I had this identity for 15 years as this, this very successful journalist that was on television. And now who am I? And I, I carried a lot of shame with that. And um, that's something else that I've been really working on. And sort of in this new sort of phase of where I'm at in my life is I was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I carried a ton of shame about that too, because that was obviously related to the stigma and to identity and to trying to understand yourself and 
and how you, again, you fit in this world. And once I was able to sort of shed that shame, Rich, um, I completely, completely sort of readjusted, um, all my sort of notions about who I am and what I'm doing in this world. And that includes all the, all the skill set, all the skills that I had as a journalist and how those can translate. So I started my own company called Beautiful Bipolar. We're a mental wellness collective, and we are here to help the city of New Orleans try and bridge the gap and the lack of accessible, affordable mental health help and healing. And one of the first things I did, I'm going to just tell this quick story real quick, because I think it's very, yeah, re- very relevant to, to my skills as a journalist, is one of the first things I did when I started this company is I had trouble finding mental health help here in New Orleans. It's a systemic issue, okay? This is not unique to New Orleans, um, but New Orleans is very challenging when it comes to mental health help. And I knew that other people, and particularly people who from more marginalized communities, probably had the same problem. So what I did was I started making calls to all the places I knew that offered low-cost therapy, whether it's sliding scale or they took Medicaid, all the places I knew in New Orleans. And I interviewed all of them. Like I was a journalist and I, I asked them tough questions. I asked them very specific questions. And then with that information, I made a resource card. It's the beautiful bipolar low cost resource card. And I only included places that were actually viable and realistic for people who needed to have some help, um, some find some low cost help. And we have that card in businesses all across New Orleans, all throughout our social media. And it's been one of the biggest or most positive sort of feedback uh, initiatives that we have gotten because I took those skills as a journalist in my tenacity and, you know, made sure that I was thorough and I applied that to, and that's, this is just one tiny small piece of our company, but I, you know, I, I think that, that, that the larger, the larger sort of message is that there are ways in which you can absolutely apply, whether it's the networking skills. I mean, my, my ability to interview people and network is like, is just, it's, it's seeing returns tenfold right now in our, in, in our company and what we're doing. And so whether it's networking, whether it's making calls, picking up that phone, you know, whatever it may be, there are so many skills that we have that are so strong and that so translate as journalists that can absolutely apply. It's just trying to figure out whatever that path is. And, or if you have other people who might lead you to that path, i.e. give you a new job in a new sector, for instance. That's phenomenal. Uh, Amy, congratulations on that. Um, Kat, you know, Amy said something about identity that I want to ask you about. I know that, um, for myself, uh, so much of my identity was wrapped up in what I did professionally for a long time. I mean, quite frankly, uh, those of us who worked at Sports Illustrated during a certain period of time were like just incredibly annoying human beings because we sort of like sort of thought we were the shit just given where we worked, just to be blunt. And I do find as I've gotten older, and a lot of it sort of has to do with I have two little kids. And, like, you just can't really be in – you don't have as much time to just be self-absorbed, just to be blunt. And so I find myself now, like, if I transitioned out of what I'm doing, which I think I will relatively soon, it doesn't feel as scary or foreboding to me because, like, my identity is not as wrapped up in being from X place or sort of covering stuff. So I wonder for you – because, again, you made this transition young and certainly much younger than I am now – like how challenging was that? Because like in our prof- in, in 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 the sports media world, like you do get wrapped up in like, you know, I'm a baseball writer or I'm I work for Newsday or I'm at ESPN or I'm, 
you know, I'm a Buffalo News Sabres beat writer. And these, again, these are for a lot of people who have just conventional jobs. Like, that, they're very glamorous jobs. Even if you, we know they're not so glamorous, like at 12 o'clock at night filing a shitty deadline story, to others, you know, you punch insurance all day. Like, this is glamorous. And so I wonder for you, like, how much was identity wrapped up in this stuff before you eventually transitioned out? I mean, I think it was. I think I also used to be such a perfectionist. And um, let me tell you, if you have a concussion that leads to a stroke, you'll probably have to get rid of some of that because you just don't have yeah. a choice. Uh, and I think that dealing, I've, I've been through kind of a lot in the, the last few decade or so uh, that I sort of just tackled like, okay, I have to do this. I have to do this, not addressing maybe some of the, the psychological or mental health aspects, just, okay, I, I, I have to be able to pay my loans. I have to make more money. I have to change careers and just doing it and not reflecting so much on it. And so the last years I've done way more reflecting, um, but I, I kind of now feel like I could handle almost anything. I don't want to, however, but I could if I had to. Uh, you know, changing careers uh, to just simply for financial reasons. I um, my life dream is to move to Spain, and and uh, in 2018, I decided to go for that. And wow. I spent a few months over there, kind of getting to know people, exploring opportunities. And that I had decided I wanted to do that, and then I got laid off. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going now because I have some severance pay. And I managed through that, and like. Found it, and that my visa. I got a job. My visa wasn't approved. I came back, found another job, and I did not have any money. So at this point, I kind of feel like if I could deal with um, sexual assault, uh, having a stroke, uh, having to change career for financial reasons, uh, you know, immigration issues. I think I'm going to be fine. I think I'm going to be fine. Kind of whatever happens. I don't Amy, know if I um, fully answered your question, but no, no, you did. Um, Amy, for you in a, um, you know, mid-sized to small, and Buffalo's not a small city. Um, that's sort of not how I, I live there, so I'd really describe it better. You know, in a, in a city that's relatively small compared to New York or Boston or Philadelphia, um, to be like a Sabres beat writer or to cover college basketball as you did, very prominent. You know, you essentially were a subset many times of one um, in terms of real prominence uh, in covering something. Um, so for you, like when you transition, and again, you're the most recent transition in this, did you have any kind of I, I, identity issues or are you at a, are you at, or were you at a certain point in your life where it made it easier than it might've, if you were, you know, 25, 27 or something like that? I'm going to give the answer. We always hated. It. It's a little bit of both. Right. But there was definitely a little bit of identity crisis is too strong of a word, but there definitely was like, that yeah. was who you were, right? And that was how people knew you. And people, you know, would come up and be like, I know you from somewhere. I'm like, yes, I know your name from somewhere. Yes, <laughs> the Buffalo News, it's probably, you know, it. So that was for so long of my life. And that was, I wanted to be a sports writer since I was in junior high. So it was like so much of my life was, was that was who, who I was. Um, and I think there was, a, there was a little bit too in leaving I had gotten over my ego of, of for uh, well before I decided I was going to, I was going to leave. I'm just like, okay, like I'm, I'm kind of done playing that game. Um, but one of the things, and I don't know if other women may have, may have felt this way and, and women of, so I'm 48. So that generation, it might be, hopefully it's different for women now, but I always, there always was kind of hanging over me. Like, 
well, you're the first one. And a lot of times I was the first woman to do X, Y, or Z, especially in, in, in this market. So in a way, like anytime I would kind of think about leaving, I felt like, am I giving up? Am I like, there, there was a little bit of that. I need to set that good example for women coming behind me. And so there was a little bit of um, trepidation when I was thinking about leaving. Like, am I, is it going to be like, there's a, there's a woman who she, you know, even though I was there for almost 20 years, like, well, she couldn't hack it anymore or it got tough. And so she left. And so there was a little bit of that thinking that that kind of, kind of went into um, that I had to, that I had to deal with that I had to kind of address and be like, okay, like I'm, I, I don't need to do this for everyone. I need to do what's best for, for me. Um, and certainly leaving a little bit of hope that I made it a little bit easier for other women who are coming up behind me that, um, that they didn't have to deal with. Um, and I didn't have to deal with anything horrible. I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky, but that they don't have to deal with as much of, you know, the bullshit and crap that, you know, girls in the locker room still you know still unfortunately have to have to deal with but hopefully i made that a little bit easier and so that was actually in my brain when i was when i was thinking about about leaving yeah i mean as you know amy like men i shouldn't class classify everyone but just that is just not something men think about like there's just you know they're making their decision they're i think maybe men of color might think about it um in terms of can i leave this beat or this place a better place but it's just it's you know, again, it's it, that's a big separation that, again, you have some, you know, white male who's 45 thinking about making a job shift. That person is most likely not thinking, oh, man, like, you know, should I go because I want to make sure, like, the people behind me have uh, have it okay. As we all know, the industry itself is still mostly white, mostly male. I wrote a so whole column on that, issues. Rich. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yes, you, you, did, yeah, you, you did a roundtable off that column. I, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. And it's Amy Moritz, <laughs> thank you for uh, sort of saying that because it's a, it's a really important point. All right. I want to ask all three of you this. Um, and um, and then I really want to get to something that's interesting because I really want your impressions of this, the business today. But Amy K, is there anything – that you really, really miss about being part of the sports media. And you've made these decisions and you made this choice, but if I could just give you, let's say a, like a one day pass where you can go back and do something like, man, that, that was cool. I really missed that. Like, is there something like that that exists? Okay. So I've got, I start to almost laugh a little bit when you ask this question, because this is, uh, this is a perfect segue. Cause I actually wanted to bring this anecdote up. Um, I was thinking about this the other day when, when I knew we were going to have, have this show, this podcast. Um, so, it was early in the pandemic and it was basically in lockdown. And I have a friend who's the general manager of this really nice place here called the country club that has a pool and a hot tub and um, was lucky enough during quarantine to be able to access it. And so I know, I mean, it's like, I, yeah, I was nice. very, very, very fortunate. And uh, there, I remember, um, I was sitting in the hot tub. This is such a ridiculous story, but um, I was sitting in the hot tub and I had a friend who was uh, like, we were, we were still like safely distancing. Um, and she was sitting across from me and she, she didn't know much about my past. She knew that I'd worked for ESPN. I did not broadcast this by the way, you know, this was, again, that was all wrapped up in the shame that I was still kind of dealing with for a while. Um, and she was like, do you, do you ever miss it? Do you ever miss being a journalist? Do you ever miss, you know, that life. And I looked at her and I go, I miss being the best 
one of the best in the country at what I used to do. And, uh, and because that, that was again, sort of tied to accomplishment and identity and all of those things, um, to answer the sort of the, the, the larger question, I think, um, what, I had to do was divorce myself from, from that profession for a while, you know, for just honestly, for sort of survival, um, more than anything. And it's been really lovely over the last few years to kind of come back to it in these ways that are sort of unexpected and storytelling more than anything is always going to be embedded and ingrained. And I'm sure it's the same with all the women, you know, on this, on the show today. Um, it's, it's a part of, uh, of our DNA. I'm sure, you know, we all did it very well at a very high level for a number of years. We're all in our forties now. Um, so we have that ability to sort of reflect back on that as well. And storytelling is absolutely something that I will do for the rest of my life. And it's really interesting that right now with my company, one of the things we're doing is we're starting to produce some little short documentaries about mental health and it's a continuation. I didn't even, I didn't even see that coming rich, honestly, like where I am right now and with beautiful report and what we're doing, but um, just in the last few years, I've sort of come back to really embracing um, that sort of love that I have for telling people's stories. And it's so important. And I think that that is always, I think, I'm sure a dilemma for a lot of journalists, right? Like to leave because now more than ever, we know how important it is for, for really good journalists to exist. And um, that love of being able to capture other people's stories and tell them really well is something that I will always have for sure. Kat, um, you know, you mentioned that you, you, you may sort of, uh, you know, get back into sports in some way, or you, you know, you're sort of still tangibly interested in this. So your answer, I think is, uh, you know, I sort of, I imagine, um, if I say, what do you miss? Well, there are certainly things you, you must miss if you're interested in, in heading back. So for you, you know, Amy sort of explained where she's coming from and storytelling is something that's still going to be a part of Amy and she wants to do. So what about, what, what is it for you that um, you think is still attracting you or drawing you perhaps back to a, a, a career or a part-time career in this? Yeah, I, I think some of it will be similar to what Amy said, not not copying, but but just truly have, sharing some similar sentiments. Um, I do really miss storytelling and, and, and telling, being able to tell stories in a, a rich, compelling fashion. And I think part of it, um, I was pretty far from sports for several years and and not really touching it in any way other than you know, watching games or something. But I've gotten closer, especially the last year or so, I've written several articles, um, one of which uh, was read by a few million people. And I think uh, even though some of them were on difficult topics, um, I enjoyed writing and the process and uh, the narrative. And so that's something that I miss. And then I, I think also doing so brought a lot of outreach from people and maybe maybe I didn't even realize that I was as outstanding at what I did as uh, I guess I was according to other people so uh, I do think yeah. that you know in journalism in media and sports it's very measurable and tangible you can see the outcome of what you do it's uh, like I don't have that in my current job nor do the vast majority of people so those are a few things I miss. Amy Moritz, um, I wonder if it's just different for you because, again, you um, – man, you just covered games for, like, nearly 20 years. So, like, I don't – like, I want – I don't know if you miss it. You know, I know, like, for me, like, when I when I end this, I'm not going to, like, 
be desperate to like watch some television show in sports and review it. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, f- I will have sort of felt like I've, I hit E on the gas tank. So when I ask you what you miss, I don't, it, it, I'm really curious for your answer. Cause I wonder if you missed any of this stuff because you did it. You were in these block rooms and press boxes for so long. Well, I don't miss rain delays and I don't miss overtime and I don't miss having to come up with some crappy notebook for first edition. Like I don't miss any of that stuff. Oh, right. Um, oh, I know. Uh, that was my year, my life for, for a few years. Um, but what I do, I, I, like the storytelling, right? And and I think that it sounds cliche, but it's not. Like when I think one of the reasons that we like to be journalists and to tell stories is because we like people and we like to hear people's stories and to feel, I always felt honored when someone would share, when I got to do a feature story, when someone would share their story with me because they trusted me with their story. Like even if it wasn't right. a very... Um, earth shattering type of thing. You're still trusting me to be your, you know, to, to tell your story, to be a conduit to, to your story. So, I mean, there are moments that, that I miss. I'll, I'll try to tell a, a, like a short anecdote because there are times, um, you know, covering games and covering things. You're like, does this even matter? And Kat was talking about that tangible that, that you have. Um, and sometimes, especially early on in my career, I would want to cover women's, women's sports which in the early 2000s was not something that a lot of people wanted to cover or, you know, read about. Um, I was really passionate about trying to do that. And I covered the very first women's frozen four and I wrote about it and nobody really at my paper kind of seemed to care. Like I came back and I did all this work and I didn't even get like, kind of just want a little pat on the back, like, Oh, Hey, good job. We spent all this money to send you there and you did a nice, nice work. And so I was feeling a little, a little down. And then I got a phone call in the office. Um, and it was from a woman whose daughter played on a high school. Actually, they didn't even have a high school team at that point. They were club teams from different, um, you know, from different high schools. Their team did went to the national championship or regional championship did really well. And they did the morning announcements at school and no one mentioned her team. No one said like that they had done well. And she was feeling like, no one cares, mom. No one cares that we won this. No one cares that we play, you know, about our hockey team. And that same day was when my spread from the women's frozen four ran. And she said, she showed her daughter, she goes, no, look, see, people do care. There are people who care about what you do. And those are those type of moments. Those don't happen often, but when they happen, that's the thing that I, that I miss was that ability to, to, to do that when you know that, wait a minute, my storytelling helps someone else get through a difficult time. Um, and those don't come often, but those are the things that I go back to. And that's having those opportunities to do that. That's what I miss. That's a, that's a, pre- that's a great story. I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to stick with you, Amy Moritz, and then can I'll I get just, to Amy sorry, can and, I, and Kat. Can I Go ahead, Kat. Something, so something that I, yeah, yeah, kind of, that I miss slash would want to get to, it's not sports, it's journalism, because I feel like they're that I feel like there are attacks on journalism right now. And, and one, one of, if not the biggest problems that we face is the disinformation and the, the rampant disinformation. And, and I think that protecting the freedom of the press, protecting accurate information, somehow fixing, helping fix that, I think it's really critical to our society. And so that's something that I miss being somehow tan- even tangentially uh, Time to. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
if I was a multimillionaire or a billionaire, I, I would honestly really try to just start a disinformation network and deal with all the bullshit fallout that came from attacks on that. But it's pretty much about as vital an issue for a democracy as it exists. Um, all right, Amy Moritz, I want to start with you, and then obviously we'll get to Amy K and Kat on this. And the reason I want to start with you is because you are the most recent out. So you, while you, but while you can answer this question as a quote unquote from the outside, you're really kind of like a outside slash insider here in terms of from your perspective. And again, you're two decades of sort of so you entered the business at a certain time and left it. Um, how do you feel? Th- how do I sort of ask this? In terms of the work that exists now on television, on audio and print, um, how do you view it? Do you view that sports journalism writ large has gotten better? Is it more inclusive? Are more stories being told? Or, again, you're a really good person to ask this. Do you feel that maybe not much progress has been made since you um, started doing this, which I would imagine if I'm doing my math right, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003? Um, that's like really – I think that maybe because I'm more recent out, I've only started like watching and paying attention to sports in the last maybe year and a half or so. Um Part of it was because I was just burned out from it. And part of it is that when as a sports writer, like the fandom is beaten out of you. So I couldn't enjoy sports for for a while um, because I felt I couldn't get invested in it. So um, I don't know if there are more stories being told. Um, Certainly one of the things I'm grateful for being out of the business for is I don't know how I would do these COVID interviews and where you don't have that access and you don't have the locker room and you don't have that ability to, to develop a relationship. I think that that is going to, I think we're going to see that um, impact storytelling and what stories get told because you don't have that access to, to, to people anymore um, that you used to If that, I'm not sure that's going to come back. Um, one of the things I know that I mentioned, you know, it before about, you know, kind of being like that woman in, in the field. And from a from a woman's standpoint, one of the things that I've seen is more women, younger women in the field on social media, and they still get the crap, but they have a way to clap back now in a way that I don't think that I that I didn't have, or I didn't have the confidence to do in the way in which they do. You know, they'll retreat, they'll right. retweet something, be like, look at how ridiculous this person is. And then they get all of the support. So while it still exists and we're human beings, so I don't think that's ever unfortunately going to go away. The fact that they have the confidence to, to, to say something back um, and a platform to do that um, is, has nothing to do with your question about sports coverage, but I feel like it, um, no, it's, it's good though. It's good. Yeah, I feel, I feel like that, that's something that actually, like, I feel sad that they have to go through that, but then I feel glad that they have that ability to say something back, um, to have some action and to, to try to have some, uh, some accountability for, for other people. I'm starting to see little glimmers of accountability that, um, kind of give me hope for the future of the business, not just for women, but for like any, for, for different, you know, racial groups for LGBTQ for um, ability versus disability, like all, all of that. They're very small, but I'm, but every time there's, I I have to hold on to some glimmer of hope somewhere. So I see that. 
So I'll go to you, Amy Kay. You know, again, from my perspective, and it's it's a little too inside or too little sort of warped. It it there are many ways, and this is the best time in the in the history of sort of sports media information in terms of the ability to get things cult uh craft your own um gatekeeping so you can sort of find what you want. There are stories that are now being told, there are issues that are being um examined that really were never examined before, including the nexus of like politics and and sports or social justice and sports at the same time. Let's be blunt. You got people out there making multiple millions of dollars for shitting on LeBron James. And like, you know, so there's like, you know, the, the profession hasn't necessarily changed its demographics so greatly. I mean, the, the press boxes are still mostly white and mostly male. And so I don't know how you'd answer this. Like, I, I think there are signs in this where things are heading towards a better place. I mean, man, like even this year, even on this podcast, like, Interviewed Lisa Byington and Kate Scott, first uh, female voices full time for the for the NBA. They call the Sixers and the Bucks, which is phenomenal in in my lifetime. But there's also a lot of shit that out there that still exists. So, for your perspective, really now a little bit of an outsider looking in. How oh, I'm such it? an outsider looking in, and I'm fully fully okay with that. I think it's really interesting that all three of us have sort of referenced needing. Um, a break and, and sort of disconnecting from the sports world. Uh, I certainly have. And and the other two women have mentioned that as well today. Uh, I absolutely, you know, for obvious reasons, um, needed to disconnect, but, um, even so I I don't, so I guess what, what I, what I'd say is I don't have a full total pulse on, on the sports media, um, business anymore, but I, I, I will say that, I have been very grateful, particularly since Trump was elected, um, to not have been a journalist uh, for the most part, particularly online. Um, I think about in the early 2000s, you know, what is worse, like what the, the online vitriol, the, the, the age of disinformation that we're in right now, or, you know, the, the lack of progress when I had a major league pitcher from the White Sox uh, throwing spitballs at me in the clubhouse while I waited to talk to Jerry Manuel, the manager in 2001, right? Like, okay, I don't think that happens anymore, right? I mean, we've, we sort of evolved as a society, I believe, with women in the, in the clubhouse or in the locker rooms. Um, and then, you know, but at the same time, then you look at online what happens and um, my gosh, is it not healthy? I mean, it is just brutal for journalists, no matter if you're in sports or otherwise. And so I think for my own personal mental health, obviously I'm in that world and that sphere now. Um, I think it's extraordinarily important to, to, to make sure that you take a step away from social media. And as a journalist, that is almost impossible. And I am still tethered to Twitter, which is just, you know, something that I have not been able to to completely divorce myself from over the years. It's like, Oh gosh, this is like, you know, this is a true addiction, but um, you know, I think, I think I don't have a full answer for that because I don't have an entire pulse, but just culturally speaking, it, it, I, I can, I have nothing but respect for journalists who are out there right now um, reporting in any way, whatever it is that you're doing, because no matter what, for the most part, you are online and you are on social media and you're going to catch it. 
in some way or another. And it's a lot. The world is really heavy right now. And so even it has nothing to do with your beat or what you're doing, you're still, you're still ingesting all of this really heavy information that's happening in the world. So I, 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 I I would encourage, I guess my only sort of takeaway from, from, or thing to add from, from your question is just try, if you're a journalist in particular right now, try and find ways to make sure that you disconnect. It's so vitally important, even if it's just for a little bit, because it can be a lot. Kat, same question to you. Yeah, I think I had hoped that things had gotten better, and, and I do think that there are ways in which they've gotten better, which both Amy has referenced. But, um, you know, uh, I, in early 2021, was kind of just consuming all the reports about, say, what had happened with Mets, the Mets GM being fired and um, a Mets manager, and just seeing so many bad things happening and and it's a credit that 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 reporting is coming out which maybe the reporting wouldn't have even come out in the past or very rarely however i was just overwhelmed by the volume of things uh that are still happening and so that's what made me decide to um write an article a personal article which ended up being published in the new york times last summer because i felt like there's still way too much of this happening and because I'm not in the business currently, I can be more open and honest without worrying about repercussions on my career, at least not at, at the same level. Uh, and and so yeah. hope that that hope hope that that helps other people, um, you know, in in raising awareness. But there is just so much of it that I'm still seeing happening. And and yes, the social media. I mean, the way that someone. Like I won't say his name, but Barstool uh, uh, will sick uh, followers on others mm-hmm. is just horrifying. And it's something that people yeah. who are like, all oh, the free speech, they're not taking into account whose speech will be limited if we stop moderate or stop moderating and stop preventing some of the vile things that happen. I mean, I was relatively fortunate because in the wake of my article, no like major figures sick to anybody on me but I still had people like threatening me or saying that I wanted money or just gross awful things and so um and I know that that was just a drop in the bucket so I think that things are better in that uh the stories can come out and there's people there are people doing amazing reporting um call out Katie Strang for one but many people uh but there's way too much of it still happening I want to finish on this, and I'll start with you, Amy Moritz. Um, there, there, there. At least for this podcast, it's certainly um, there's certainly a lot of people from the uh, sports media world who listen. I don't know how many of those people sort of are contemplating uh, leaving the business or contemplating maybe doing something else. But just the realities of the economics are there have to be some um, with just uh, layoffs and consolidation, et cetera. So again, all three of you have. Um, You've successfully found uh, careers and um, and things that you're passionate about uh, away from what you used to do in the sports media. So I want to start with you, Amy Rich. What's your advice for someone who's really seriously thinking about leaving and 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 wants like a successful blueprint on how to make that transition, which is something you obviously have done. You know, I think it goes back to using your skills as a journalist, like Amy Kay was saying earlier, um, and that 
when I was thinking about leaving, I took meetings with, I asked people to coffee all the time and been like, you know, people who I trusted a little bit, or I didn't want everyone in the world to know that I was looking to, to leave the Buffalo news. But, um, Hey, tell me about like your job. Tell me about, I'm look. I'm interested in doing something different. Like think about what you might want to do and who, you know, because you know, people and just start having kind of those conversations. Um, it gives you information about what's available. It gives you information. It gives you contacts. Um, sometimes you end up, you know, it's like anything. It's the, the, who, you know, and who you talk to, you never know who you're, who you're going to be talking to on that day, what's going on in, in their world or who they know that's, that's looking for someone as you try to make that transition. But that, I mean, that to me is like my, one of my biggest advice, use those skills that you have as a journalist to see what else is out there, what else you're interested in and talk to people and, and get kind of get, get their opinion and, and get the pulse on things um, in either in the community you're in or the community you want to move to. Uh, Amy K. Nelson, uh, I know your uh, sort of journey is unique to you, but you know, again, um, on the other side, you founded your own wellness company. Um, you've, uh, as you mentioned before, you know, you, um, you got into photography, you've sort of done many, many different things, uh, in your post, uh, sports media career. So what's your advice? And again, you're now, I mean, is it fair to call you a small business owner? I think that's what you oh, want, Rich, right? So like you've I am a founder, from, yeah, founder and CEO. Yeah, right. And I, I just right. completed, so so you, uh, you, no, no, no. I am, I am a business woman and I am a business owner. I just completed the fall cohort of a startup incubator here in New Orleans. I am right. not messing around. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, right. no, so what I'm saying is like, I think there are people in our profession who are like, man, I can never do this. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I can hardly do math, <laughs> let alone my job. So good for you to do that. So what's your advice in terms of like, you know, you put, you pulled it off. So how do you transition? Oh, what's your advice? Yeah, I'm pulling it off, but it is hard, hard work. Okay. And I'm doing something that I've never done before, but I'm so glad that you asked this because, um, it's so interesting how, how life can be cyclical. Right. And I was thinking back, I've done a lot of reflecting and I was thinking back when I was 22 years old and I first entered this business and I was standing on the field at Fenway park, having no background in journalism, no background in sports. And luckily had gotten a job within the sports business out of the gate that got me covering professional sports. And I had no fear. I had, I had a determination to be successful because I was a very ambitious person. And part of what had happened to me over the last eight years or so was because of my crisis, I had all of these things, shame, fear, you know, doubt, identity, all of these things. Right. And part of what therapy has been very helpful for, in addition to just um, time is that I was able to shed all of that. And in particular, in the last year, I've only, my business has only existed in this world for the last year. Um, actually it's the one year anniversary today, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. 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 Um, but um, it's really getting back to that is that it is scary. It can be terrifying change can be terrifying and try, I try just personally speaking to go back to my roots when I was in my twenties and I was walking up to professional athletes with full confidence, no fear and asking them questions and trying to tell stories and learn the business and figure out, figure that out, figure out what the hell I was doing in my twenties to, to build, you know, to what I eventually built to. And so I'm doing that now in my forties, I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking those lessons and I'm trying to sort of 
kind of come back to that, to that confidence that I have in myself, that I can do this. And that to me, if, if I were to impart anything, I think it would be try and, and, and embrace that and, and, and embrace all of the things that we do as journalists, which is the shedding of fear and going after it. All right, Kat, I will, uh, I will give you the final word here. Um, and again, you've transitioned from uh, baseball writing to major corporations. What's your advice for people thinking about doing this? Yeah, first I want to say um, I, I really admire what Amy's done being an entrepreneur because I think that that's um, really cool. Something I've thought about, or I do think about, and I, um, you know, took a different path in that I went and got an MBA um, from Wharton, and and so that both aided my transition, but also made it more challenging because it opened a lot of doors for me. However, it also closed off doors because I owed much a ton of money. <laughs> um, and so like, I couldn't be an entrepreneur then or still, because I'm still paying off the student loans. Um, but I, I have a lot of different career paths that were open to me and, and networking. And so I would say really think about what things light you up, what things make you happy, what things um, could you do and, and what's most important to you? Because, uh, you know, if, if stability is most important to you, that's going to take you in certain directions. If, if ambition, if mission, if passion, if, um, you know, doing something that you really care about, depending on what your priorities are, which can totally change from day to day, year to year, decade to decade, um, out of necessity or just out of your, your personal uh, circumstances or, or feelings, um, I think then pursue something there that aligns with, you know, your skill set. And, but there are so many different paths, I, you know, back when I was thinking about it, I was like, Oh, uh, PR, I don't know. Like I, I honestly just didn't think of, where would I go from journalism? But there are so many different paths from being, you know, a small business owner to doing something completely unrelated to doing something. You know, there are people working for in sports, not in media, people working in media, not in sports, or just completely, you know, you could open a restaurant. Uh, so I just think this really, there are a lot of possibilities out there. And it's more about not failing to imagine what could be because uh, and i still see uh, many many possibilities in front of me and it, it it's up to me to figure out which of those i want to pursue and make happen yes cat i love that i'm giving you snaps from new orleans that was amazing yes me too yes <laughs> <laughs> all of the snaps <laughs> a lot of snaps here i like it i want to thank the three of you for coming on today a great admiration for all three of you um and i really think you're inspirational for people who um like want to know if there's like another side like if they want to sort of leave this business and all three of you have proven uh that's the case and it doesn't mean that you guys might not be back in the business in in some form which would be awesome but uh but I wish you nothing but the uh, the best of success. Uh, Amy K. Nelson, you can check out, obviously, um, her uh, business in New Orleans. Um, Amy Moritz is uh, now post-Buffalo News. I think in public relations, Amy, is that? Is that uh, yep, yep, at, uh, at the Martin Group, uh, based in Buffalo, New York. All right, and Kat O'Brien, uh, she may have news to announce professionally heading forward, but I, I did tell her that I'm not... Not going to ask her directly on that. That's for her. Uh, that's that's her story to tell. 
Uh, but I, mean, I wish I meant, I'm currently, I meant MasterCard in New York City right. currently. So. Okay. Right. Obviously. Yeah. And you're welcome, by the way, Kat, for all the cash I've given your that company for many years at this point. Uh, <laughs> um, but I wish the three of you uh, nothing but um, but great success. And uh, and thanks so much today for uh, coming on the sports media podcast. I'll be following your careers uh, uh, as you guys uh, head forward. Thank you so much for the honesty and the inspirational words today. Thanks, thanks Rich. for having us. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate you. Appreciate it. All right. As I said at the top, we do have a uh, uh, second segment of this podcast, and it is the return of TJ Quinn, the fine investigative reporter for ESPN. He was on this podcast March 15th to talk about his reporting on Brittany Griner. And I wanted to bring him back this week because like the 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 case has significantly shifted. Obviously, TJ can uh, can speak to this better than I can. TJ, welcome back to the sports media podcast. It is an honor. Thanks, uh, yeah, don't go crazy, TJ. I, I, I don't might be the wrong word, but uh, but thank you for being here and all the same. So, uh, what's interesting here, and please, like, sort of, um, if you could educate my audience on this better than my very quick synopsis here, but it, it, from what I understand, like, Brittany Griner's case has sort of been reclassified in a way by the United States government, and this is sort of the reason where when I had you on in March. People were specifically, including WNBA people and her agents and fans and fr- family and friends, were not being public with her case. That has since shifted, and I think it has shifted because the U.S. now um, has changed its strategy when it comes to trying to bring her back home. Can you can you sort of give a, a better explanation of what I what I just gave? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's been this debate. Um, within the State Department over who should be handling her case. So far, it's been consular affairs, which would look after any American, even you and me, um, if uh, if we were incarcerated someplace. They want to see what's going on. Um, there are very specific guidelines as to whether or not you can declare somebody to be wrongfully detained. There's a, a, a law passed in 2020 called the Levinson Act, and it lays out these criteria, um, like the person's not being treated fairly, they're clearly been targeted as an American, there's evidence of, of their innocence. Um, but at some point, you know, if those criteria are met, then it's moved from the consular office to the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And that's what happened over the weekend. Um, they moved it to that office and that's a big deal. And what it, b- before what they were doing was just sort of monitoring her through the legal system and taking advantage, you know, I mean, we can talk ad nauseum about the, you know, imbalance between how we treat men's and women's sports. Um, but the fact is that, yes, one of the greatest athletes in the world um, was getting far less attention because uh, she's a woman and not a man. And they were taking advantage of that fact. Um, it would have been harder to hide an NBA player um, and certainly one with the stature in the NBA that Brittany Griner has in the WNBA. But the thought was, if you make too big a deal about her, then you make her a valuable asset for Vladimir Putin's government. And then she's completely at his whim. So the thought from the State Department and the advice they gave to Griner's you know, supporters, agents, family, 
was, look, keep your head down for now. They have a criminal justice system, you know, insofar as it goes over there. Um, let's watch what happens and see how she's treated. Maybe there's a way to handle this in the legal system. Everybody thought, and everyone I talked to said they were really waiting to see what was going to happen uh, May 19th when she's got her next hearing scheduled. Technically, she hasn't even been charged yet. Um, they've said what she's accused of, but that's not the same. Um, and everyone anticipated that at that at May 19th, that prosecutors would probably ask for another extension. Under Russian law, they can do it up to a year pre-trial, um, which is what's happened with other Americans who were arrested. So everyone was waiting to see what was going to happen with that. But then last week, American Trevor Reed, who has been over there since 2019 and whose health was you know, in, in a dire condition, his parents said he had untreated tuberculosis. He had severely been injured in some kind of fall or accident. Um, all of a sudden, the news came that he was coming home and this huge you know, alarm goes off in, in Griner's world. That means there is an open channel between these two countries, because with what's going on with Ukraine right now, it was not clear there was any diplomatic communication. But it turns out that the State Department had been negotiating and so had former U.S. Ambassador Bill Richardson acting as a private citizen had been working on a deal for months and months. And the people I talked to just last week said, so this is what to watch with Griner. Do they move her to the special presidential envoy's desk, which the shorthand is SPIHA? And do they move her to SPIHA? And, and does Richardson get involved? And all of a sudden, we find out that, yes, Richardson signed on last week, which is a big deal. They don't sign on unless they believe they can get someone out. Um, and the State Department said, OK, you are now considered to be wrongfully detained. She's not technically a hostage. Um, there's a legal definition for that. Um, but in the, the people around Brittany Griner that I spoke to said they're taking this as a really positive sign. They know, look, Trevor Reed and, and American Paul Whelan, who's still over there, um, you know, it, it, it's been more than two years since each of them was arrested and, and Whelan's still there. So it doesn't mean that just because they've done this, suddenly Brittany Griner is going to be home, you know, for the season opener. Um, but it, to them, it was a ray of hope that, wow, you can cut a deal. And it also means that now they're going to turn up the pressure on the White House. They've really, again, tried to keep a low profile, let the U.S. government do its job. Um, but now that they see there's a channel, now that she is wrongfully, officially wrongfully detained in the eyes of our government, you're going to see a big push. Okay, so this leads to, uh, thank you for that explanation. This leads to a number of questions. One, and again, I, I realize that um, you'd be doing a little informed speculation, but what is the status now of that May 19th potential hearing? Do your sources indicate like that that will happen or is the likelihood that the whatever the Russian apparatus is asked for an extension and there'll be no, I, I would assume it's public, there'll be no public hearing on May 19th in Russia for Brittany Griner? It's not public in the sense that like anybody can walk in, but there will be observers and her lawyers will be there. Um, and no, it's a really good question because just because the U.S. government says she's wrongfully detained doesn't mean Vladimir Putin's going to suddenly agree. And uh, the expectation is that they'll just continue with their case as is, and they have to essentially go through the kabuki of, uh, you know, putting her through that process. Um, 
we don't know what talks are going on. We don't know, you know, if there's been any conversation so far about a deal for her. Um, but, you know, the, there's really no reason to think that Russia will, will change its course. It has to keep doing this. So you would expect that they're going to have the hearing, probably ask for a delay again, no reason not to, um, you know, and just kind of, it, it becomes kabuki, you know, at, at this point, really. Do we, um, has there been any indication um, as to what her physical health is at the moment and her mental health is at the moment? What I'm told by her people is she's good considering the circumstances. Um, they've got lawyers who are seeing her twice a week, the Russian lawyers, um, who, who do work for her. Um, they, uh, it's fine. You know, there, there was some, you, you've heard some rumblings that the State Department isn't thrilled about the access that they've had. Um, but my, the people I've talked to said they really don't care. They know she's okay. They're not, they want to get her out, um, but they, they don't express much concern. Dude, I mean, again, I, I'm not sure if even this information is readily available, but like, do we know where, like on a day-to-day -day basis, like what kind of facility she's, she's being held in? Is it, is it, a, is it what we think of as uh, um, jail? Is it what we think of as like some kind of holding facility? Is it like, I, I don't, you know? I mean, from what I understand, it's a jail. I don't know where it is. Um, I know that no American who's been detained has ever come back. And so that was great. Um, you know, um, anybody who's ever been in a jail or prison here, um, even uh, in, in our fine country, um, think it's, you know, being incarcerated is pretty lousy, but it sounds like in Russia, kind of a crapshoot. You can be in really bad circumstances if they want, like it sounds like Trevor Reed was. Um, or, you know, the way it was described to me, and I, and I look, I take it with a grain of salt. I know that the people I'm speaking to have an agenda, and that's to get her out of there. Right. And so yep. it could be that she's not in great shape, and they just don't want to say anything that's going to trigger anybody or you know, it's going to piss off the Russians or the U.S. government. So I, I, all I can do is, you know, repeat what they tell me, which is that she's okay, that she's comfortable. I guess it's tough to find a bed her size, not a shock when, when you're six, nine. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that she's reading. It was pretty funny because the first word that came out of Russia from a, an allegedly independent observer um, where there's no such thing over there. Yep. It was that she was reading um, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And uh, of course, she was, you know, enamored with Russia's greatest novelists. Um, but uh, she's apparently reading. She's got roommates. I think there are people she can speak to in English. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's, I mean, again, not, you know, the, I always get the caveat. She's good considering. Yep. Okay. The, one of the things that, um, that is a recent development, and clearly the WNBA, I am sure, is in contact with the State Department on this, was the league now has a floor decal on the home court sidelines of all the teams, and it's featuring Brittany Grinder's initials as well as her number. So even from talking to you, TJ, in March, that's a significant sea change where the WNBA did not turn on any kind of publicity arm intentionally obviously to to promote this case that that now has is a sea change difference in that if you sort of just play it out here every single game in the WNBA this year 
will highlight Brittany Griner. I, I mean, I you know your network, your company obviously has a lot of these games. I just would be stunned if we don't often see imagery of Brittany Griner on almost every national broadcast. I think it's going to be everywhere now. And you're right. I mean, there's not a single thing that the NBA has has done. Excuse me, that the WNBA, I hate when people do that, that the WNBA has done that is not absolutely deliberate and not vetted or, you know, or not at the guidance of um, Brittany Griner's representatives based on State Department advice. So, I mean, you know, when they had the draft uh, a couple of weeks ago, Kathy Engelberth opened yeah, the whole ceremony that. It was saying striking. Brittany yep. Griner's name. And it was, that is absolutely deliberate. So they've, They've, I think they've had the strategy of trying to slowly turn the heat up. Um, th- their attitude with the State Department has been, hey, look, we're going to listen, but only for so long. And now I th- it, it seems clear from the – I spoke to several people at State. Um, I think they feel like at this point, yeah, why would they hold back? She is now – if she's a wrongful detainee, there's, there's no problem with it. I mean, it, it was interesting because when I would ask people about Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan – You'd hear frustration from from career people at state who were saying, look, the pressure doesn't make a difference to us. We have every incentive to get Americans out of there. We don't need, you know, the the publicity. If they want to protest, fine, that's their right, but it doesn't change our priorities. We want to get them out. But I've spoken to a number of people. Um, and notably, if anybody wants to look him up, his stuff on this has been fascinating. Uh, Jason Resign of the Washington Post, who himself was incarcerated in Iran for 544 days, um, has been one of these, you know, one of the people out there saying you should raise as much noise as you can all the time. Make sure that Joe Biden is hearing her name every day so that he's he or Ron Klain or somebody from his office is calling state saying, where are we with this to try to force force a deal? Um, and so now, you know, like that decal that was, you know, that, that's no accident. Right. Um, and the WNBA didn't do that, you know, on its own. So you're, you're going to see it, especially once the season opens. Um, it, they'll be very vocal. One more thing I want to get to, and we talked a little bit about this uh, when I spoke to you in March that um, was just of interest to me. Um, you know, Sports Illustrated, uh, one of the one of the I wouldn't call it a beat, but one of the things I covered was women's basketball. And I got to cover the um, the women's final four every year, which was an awesome tournament to cover. And what you knew, you know, sort of having talked to star players and sort of people around the sport um, the reality was that the the best players um, always had to supplement their WNBA income by going to Europe or going um, to Russia or going to China. And particularly the money in those places was for stars so significant that like, you know, you can make, you're not making LeBron money, but, you know, you could put up high seven, high six figures uh, by playing, you know, four months and some uh Euro League, you know, very famously Diana Tarazi Subert played for a Russian at the time Russian oligarch. And so um it it has me thinking, TJ, just given the state of um Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh a war that continues, and neither of us are geopolitical experts. I wouldn't begin to guess when it would end. But at a certain point, knock on wood, it ends. Obviously Ukraine has to rebuild, which is gonna take years. But like my thought here, and I'm not trying to be make some sort of grand statement, but it seems inconceivable to me, TJ, that any American women's basketball player 
will be playing in any league that has Russia as part of its league, which I imagine maybe it won't, like from now, like for 20 years. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, and then you wonder, like, would, given what happened to Griner, would these athletes risk going to Turkey or going to China or going anywhere because of what they've seen from her? I just think fundamentally, um, in a, you know, knock on wood, Brittany comes home, but like fundamentally, this feels like it has just shifted the entire paradigm when it comes to these players uh, playing abroad for for supplemental income. How do you see it? Oh, hugely, yeah. Well, first of all, I, I disagree. I think my Bachelor of Journalism degree does make me a geopolitical expert, okay. as well as a legal, medical, um, government uh, expert. Right. Um, but that's that's all right. TJ Quinn's going to he's, so, he's in twenty thirty six. He's buying yeah. Twitter. You heard it here. Bachelor, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but. You, 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 I mean, yeah, as far as Russia itself, it's hard to see any, any time when somebody would go back there. But right. there's, there's another issue with this, which was, um, you know, everybody was happy to get in bed with Russian money. Correct. I mean, you're, 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 a, you're a soccer fan. Um, you know, uh, fans of the English Premier League were perfectly happy when extremely wealthy oil money, whether it was from the Middle East or from Russia, was coming into that league and the NBA had its own, you know, uh, had its own oligarch owning the nets exactly. and, yep. and oligarchs don't, aren't plucky kids who started uh, lemonade stands and built it into something great. I mean, they're criminals, you know, and not, every, well, I got to watch, I don't want to get sued by an oligarch, but you know, when you there are, are in suspect Russia, means in terms of how they achieve their, their billion, their billions. There is no oligarch in Russia who is not won um, by the will and mercy of Vladimir Putin. And they are the vehicle that funds him money and that funds him money and keeps him in power. That's what you're buying into. It's an organized crime system, you know, that that government. I mean, that's that is, is I don't see how any reasonable person could could argue otherwise. That's where the money is coming from. And it's yes, it is ridiculous that, you know, U.S. women had to go over there. The, the you know, women who play in, in the highest league possible for their sport can't get the money in that league that they can get going over there. Well, there's also something on the players as well to think about where that money is coming from and, and what they're buying into. Um, I mean, there's going to be so much pressure on the NBA now um, to do what it can with a WNBA to make sure salaries are better. Adam Silver has already mentioned that he's, you know, he, he recognizes that's an issue. Um, you know, even though owners have been pretty, you know, incalcitrant about it. Um, but, you know, you got to rethink, you would have to think that all these sports leagues, teams, and individual athletes have got to think twice about who are you getting into bed with when you, when you take that money. So I can't see, I mean, Russia specifically, and you would think there would be some reevaluation of some of those other leagues as well. I mean, you know, those who even geopolitical amateurs like us know, you know, Turkey has shifted toward a more authoritarian, authoritarian government. Yep. Um, those are the countries that tend to put money into sports like that. So, I mean, China it, is a perfect example of the calculation that, a lot of people have to make, you know, soccer players, you mentioned a perfect example. There certainly have been athletes who have played 
uh, basketball players who have played in China. I mean, I think in many ways we, I guess you know, we could sort of get it down to 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 many of us, I guess, who have any kind of connection with a company that has a connection or sub connection with with China or some other countries. But it does seem like TJ the calculation that a lot that some of these athletes now have to make is just bigger given one what's happened to Griner and two just sort of the state of the world at, at, at in 2022. No, absolutely. And it's you know, you're able to for a long time, uh, you know, I think the idea was always well engagement's better. And so you didn't, right. you know, as far as US geopolitical strategy, you didn't hear government leaders saying we shouldn't have athletes over there. It's you know, I, this is something I remember from Tiananmen Square, um, um, you know, where the Chinese government massacred its own citizens. And there was this huge moment in this country of, you know, how do we react? And the reaction was stay engaged because there's so much money involved. And you can argue whether it's a rationalization or not, but the decision was made. No, no, we're, we can do more if we stay engaged with them. And it does seem like that's that's being reevaluated. And you see in all these companies and leagues, you know, the, the pressure they're suddenly facing over the relationship with China. Um, you know, the Chinese government is what it was, but it was, you know, the Uyghur issue that really forced company, you know, country companies and other countries to start, you know, having to take a, a harsh look at themselves. And, you know, my, my company as well, we're, you know, we're no different. We're a massive global corporation. And yeah, listen, you're, you're right. And, you know, um, NBC just <laughs> had its Olympics in China. Fox yep. is about to head to Qatar for the World Cup. And yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I, you know, having worked at uh, Time, Time Inc., Time Warner, I would imagine back in the day they did probably business with the Chinese perhaps to Russia. So like we are all in some way, I probably connected to this especially in the global world, but you are right, man. There are, there are certain companies, particularly American sports companies, like they're right there. They're literally putting on events like within these countries. Yep. I mean, the, the, to me, the, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, is um, the fact, you know, once the IOC had to take a stand, you know, when Thomas Bach has done everything possible to bend over backwards to let Correct. Russia back into the fold, um, the ridiculous rationalizations that you've heard from them, um, the way they ignored uh, WADA's own roadmap for Russia to restore itself, um, take no accountability for the largest doping scandal in the history of sport. Um, once Thomas Bach had to... Uh, you know, I had to say, okay, we're, we're, we think we're done with you guys. That's a sign that, yeah, there, there's just no going back. Um, when, uh, when you lose Thomas Bach, you truly are an awful country, basically. I, I feel like you're saying <laughs> right. shorthand. There's a lot of uh, truth to that. Uh, TJ, thanks for coming on. I, 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 I want to be very serious here. Like there are a lot of people who've been reporting on grind or particularly in the women's basketball community. Um, and I certainly sort of appreciate their work. Uh, if you don't hear it, uh, you'll certainly hear it from me here. Like it's really an important story that you're doing, which I think, you know, but more than that, you just happen to work at a place that is far and away the biggest microphone for women's basketball. So I'm glad you're reporting this. I hope your bosses continue to have you report on this because honestly, it's vital that ESPN reports on this because they are at least in 22 
sort of the hub of, of women's basketball in this country, just given the rights that they have. So um, I'm really no, glad to a, see it, and I, I hope I, you continue. Yeah, I mean, I really, they've been nothing but supportive. And, you know, if, if you and I were back in Sandy Padway's class in Columbia talking about this with students, um, it's kind of, you know, a fascinating case. And, you know, everything that we do, you know, my whole life as a reporter is to get information and get it out there. But in this case, you have to understand they're, literally national interests at stake there's someone's life at stake and so you don't report it the way you normally would but i think the company is you know they've been everyone i work with has been fantastic about a commitment to it but you know wanting to do it and let's let's do this in an ethical responsible way as best we can well tj i'll be checking back with you in a couple months uh again this story is of interest to me so i'm going to continue to do updates with you uh tj quinton investigative reporter for espn you can obviously follow his work uh, on their site, at their company. Uh, he's on Twitter as well. TJ, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio. Uh, my uh, my thanks to my guests today for, uh, for their time and insight and really interesting conversations. Uh, so thank you to Amy Moritz, Amy K. Nelson, Cat O'Brien, and TJ Quinn. Uh, you know, we say this every week, but it really does matter. If you like this podcast, please head to um, wherever you get them. Leave us a five-star review and a, a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. You go to the archives. Uh, last couple of podcasts, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe joined me on uh, discussing the NFL draft coverage, what we thought of that, as well as the upcoming NHL playoffs. Covering the NFL and the NFL draft, what it's like for a beat reporter with Michael Sean Duger. Rianne Walker and Tashawn Reed. They're my colleagues at The Athletic. We did a roundtable with them. Susie Culber, Gus Johnson, recent guests on this podcast. Lisa Byington, Kate Scott, Voices of the Bucks, and the Sixers, Fox Sports, MLB broadcaster Joe Davis, the new voice of the World Series. Head to the archives. Hopefully there's something that uh, fits for you. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to Cadence 13. Mostly thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.